Hey guys, welcome to Left at the Light. I'm your host, Matt. Um, yeah, so I know that on the last episode it was a season finale, uh, but I got to tell you something. Uh, I got an opportunity to uh, speak to um, retired Lieutenant Colonel Ryan Yantis about um, his experience at the Pentagon on September 11th. Uh, so I obviously I, I had to talk to him. I wanted to get this story. I wanted to get the story for the listeners of Left to the Light. Um, and considering that September 11th is coming up, uh, and it's the 20-year anniversary, uh, this was kind of an opportunity I I had to take. Um, so we're uh, bonus season two episode. Um, so it's September 11th. A lot of people talk about where you were that day, what happened, and I'll tell you my story. Um, so I was working in Crystal Lake. If you've lived in Crystal Lake for 20 plus years, you might know the name of um, local business, um, Mobiltronics, and that's where I was working at the time. Um, small cell phone store. Uh, we sold at the time it was called cellular one, which became singular wireless, which is now what most people know as AT&T um, So I worked at that store. Um, they had a fairly new location um, on Route 14 and um, The the owner of the business uh, is net was <laughs> Misspeaking a little bit, but the owner of the business uh, later in life became my mother-in-law that day, drove into work, didn't know what was going on, got to work, and she asked me, hey, did you see what's going on? Kind of told me a brief thing, and I was like, what? you got to be kidding me, you know? And so uh, we had, like, the main office of the, of the building, um, kind of the sales area where the customers were, then our office, and then attached to the building was a uh, garage in which we had a small TV. TV was not hooked up to anything. I brought it into our office area, hooked it up, um, just rabbit ear antennas, uh, got a signal, and we watched uh, what was unfolding. Um, and soon after we started watching, uh, we saw the uh, second plane hit. And just just a surreal day from that point on, just what was going on, trying to take it all in and be like, what is what is happening? Um, as I, I'm sure anybody listening to this uh, had a just a, just the same reaction, you know, just like what what is going on right now. Um, so as, as you can imagine, um, you know, in the subsequent years, just seeing people talk about their stories and hearing different stories and um, so on. Uh, so last week after the episode came out, uh, Ryan reached out to me and said, Hey, you know, I, I'd love to talk about this, be on the show and everything. And, and I jumped at the opportunity. So you guys just, uh, just as you listen to this, just remember the content of the conversation. Um, if you want your kids to be around, if you don't want your kids to be around, so on and so forth. Um, I mean, you know, you know, the basics of the story. Um, I, uh, I I have two daughters, 15 and 12, and I'm going to make sure that they listen to this uh, once it's all done. And, uh, you know, and 
you know, if you guys please, please share the episode with people you know, uh, if you have schools, teachers, uh, students, so forth, so on, feel free to share this with them. Um, it was a pleasure to talk to Ryan and get his story of the day and also hear about um, some of the people that he knew, some of the people that he's met as he's talked about um, this story. So um, sit back and listen. Um, and uh, we'll see you at the end of the episode and then uh, wrap everything up. Uh, Ryan, uh, Lieutenant Colonel of the Army, uh, retired. Yep. Uh, when did you retire? Um, I retired in Chicago in 2006. And, 2006. Uh, um, so, I, you know, the, the intro that I'm doing for this episode, I kind of really kind of left it open a little bit. Didn't really tell your story at all or who you were. Um, but September 11th, 2001, uh, where I kind of, I like kind of, in the intro, talk about where I was, where were you? So I was an army officer in the media relations division of army public affairs. And my job was to answer questions about American soldiers and our personnel policies, which sounds incredibly boring. <laughs> and most of the time it was, but we had the topics like don't ask, don't tell and women in the military, army suicide policy, weight control, investigations, good things that happened to people and bad things. I was leading the team of spokesmen and women, and it was a mix of military civilian. And uh, our job was to answer questions to the Pentagon press corps and the national and international news media who called us and asked for information. And uh, my office was in the E ring, the outer ring of the Pentagon on the second floor. And, uh, you know, the geography of the Pentagon, that's a big part of the story. Five floors above ground, five rings of buildings with 10 radiating connecting corridors. So if you imagine, you know, that lattice of uh, all those hallways, all those corridors, each ring is a corridor uh, going laterally around the building, 17 and a half miles of corridor and about 6 million square feet of office space and 20,000 estimated uh, work offices or work areas. And, uh, Huge building, but the design uh, with the five sides, each outside part is 62 feet tall and 907 feet long. And from point to point, uh, the farthest walking distance in the building, uh, you can make it from the, the fifth floor between uh, on the E-ring between one and three, excuse me, two and three. Uh, over to corridor eight on the first floor in three to five minutes at normal walking speed. If you know where you're going and you know the address. Um, but it's really a fascinating building. And it's one of those that people have seen pictures of. Uh, there's a high public knowledge of the Pentagon right up to the facade on the outside. And then there's mystique on the inside. Um, so that day, um, I, I mean, I, I've seen a lot of people just kind of say it was just a normal day up until that point. Um, tell me about your day leading up to uh, the plane. Well, September 11th, the, the day 
was a pretty day. It was one of those, like today, cool first day without uh, a lot of humidity, nice sunshine. Um, I had to go to work. I couldn't play hooky and, and go play golf. Normal work day was about seven in the morning uh, with getting in and reading the emails from overnight from international because the army is a worldwide business. And uh, we had a morning meeting where my team leaders and I would get together with our boss. And uh, there were three major teams in the media relations division that each had a part of the army staff that we supported. And that meeting normally lasted 30 minutes. It went long. It was about 45 and as we were coming out of that meeting, I had a small TV on my desk. And it was so we had uh, each of us had this capability, but it was a way to know what was going on in the outside world. And that's right as the first reports of the first plane hitting World Trade Center one in New York was making the news. And uh, if you remember, the initial reports was, hey, there's been an accident. An aircraft hit the World Trade Center developing situation. We'll report more as we know it. Uh, World Trade Center building is on fire. I had just left a, a two-year assignment uh, immediately before coming into the Pentagon uh, in New York City. So I hopped on the phone, called my counterparts up in New York City and made sure they were aware and awake uh, because New York City doesn't really come to work until nine o'clock. And it's just before then. Uh, let my boss and other people know the rest of us were watching the big screen TV in our team room uh, and saw the second plane hit at 9.03. And it was right then that I knew it was either a deliberate act by someone or the laws of physics had changed and large aircraft were attracted to large buildings. Um, that didn't seem too likely. And uh, I remember telling one of the people who worked for me, she was uh, nine months pregnant. And I looked at her and I said, Elaine, get your stuff and go home. I want you out of here. And she said, no, we're going to be busy. This is going to get be a crazy day. And I said, I know, but I want you out of here. We're next. And that was just a gut response and a gut feeling. Um, fortunately, she didn't listen to me. Um, she was coming back down the hall, carrying a cup of coffee, one for me and one for her. And the impact of the plane knocked her off her feet. But she made it out of the building that day made it out safely, uh, went and worked remotely uh, in a different office in the aftermath. And her son was born 10 days after the attack. He's now a college sophomore. Uh, after 9.03, there was a flurry of activity and calls, uh, making sure others on the Army staff were aware of what was going on because our office was not part of the intelligence arm uh, of the Army, but we had... Uh, a little bit more open source intel. Uh, we had more visibility to the outside through news media. And uh, just awareness is an important thing. Sorry about that. Okay. Uh, so we, um, I got, uh, I was a major at the time and there was a Lieutenant Colonel who was new to our organization. He had been in the building about six weeks. And he said, okay, you worked in New York City, right? I want you to come with me. There's a meeting to talk about New York and what help they might ask for. It's called domestic operation military support, just like what we're being asked, the military is being asked to do for the fires out west and uh, the hurricane that just went up through the south and east. If it overwhelms local capacity, the locals can ask for 
federal assistance, and that's beyond the National Guard. But we have to be asked. Before we get asked, we can start thinking and preparing, and that's what we were going to do. Um, so Henry and I left our office. It was on the outer ring. We walked quickly down the E-ring and got to the juncture between corridors four and five. And that was a, a place where wedge one had just been renovated. And that was corridor four. It was a new floor plan, new layout, had new safety features. Our wedge uh, was corridor five and six. And it was the old 1930s, 1940s layers of construction and remodel, old Pentagon or vintage. And I asked him, sir, where are we going? And, and Henry couldn't tell me the office number where we were going. You know, and if he had said, okay, we're going to uh, 1D451. Uh, okay, gotcha. You know, first floor, D ring, corridor four, room 51. I'll get you there. But he didn't have that alphanumeric. And he couldn't tell me who was hosting the meeting. And it's, sir, five floors, five rings. There are a lot of options. It's just, you know, let's go ask directions. Uh, we groused for a little bit. This is at 9.30. The meeting starts at 9.30. We finally go and call. It's actually over on corridor seven. We walk in there at 9.37. And that's when the alarms went off and uh, we were told to evacuate that the building had been hit. And the sergeant who had told us that, I asked him, great, well, where was... You know, where was the explosion? Where was the building hit? Halipad by corridor four. And uh, the, the realization was not immediate. It was actually six weeks later that uh, Henry reminded me that if I hadn't been a stubborn pain in the butt, he and I would have been wandering around corridor four looking for a meeting that wasn't there. So, um, you know, the, the, uh, the first two people I helped uh, by my stubbornness was me and Henry. And uh, otherwise we could have been potentially at best badly injured and at worst killed. But uh, it was a hot morning, ran out of there, went back up to my office, make sure my people and the, uh, the rest of the folks from our office, about 60 military and civilians had been evacuated. They had. And then I started clearing offices on the evening, making sure folks were out. Um, just to make, and that's the Boy Scout in me, is you go and help other people. Uh, bluntly, the, the conditions were not good. There was smoke coming down from the ceiling. I was not dressed to go into that uh, or equipped. Uh, when a security guard saw me, he hollered at me to evacuate the building, and I did. And it was something that bothered me for a number of years. I felt very bad for leaving. Because I didn't know if there was somebody else that was just around the corner that was in need of help. And I chickened out at the last second that I could have done something. But I made it on the outside. And uh, when I first saw the face of the building where the plane had hit, and that was right at corridor four. What I remember is there was seemingly the, the face of the building was on fire. And it was a heavy red oily fire with black smoke. Uh, there were people running and walking away from the building, people running and walking to the building. And there was all this debris and uh, glittery junk out on the, the grass. Uh, and that was incongruent because the Pentagon had nice, clean grounds. It was almost park light in his setting. Mm -hmm. uh, 
got to our rally point, which was our designated gather point for emergency evacuations. We were missing people. I had my cell phone. So I ran up to the north exit, corridor eight. And when I got there to look for people, uh, there was a row of stretchers opened up in the shade of a tree. And, and it was one of those uh, record scratch moments because I got into the shade of the tree and I'd been moving kind of fast and it was warm. And I was catching my breath and it's, where are the stretchers here? And I looked back at the building and there were three guys carrying something between them in a, a curtain or a set of drapes. They'd made an improvised stretcher out of it. Oh, here's a stretcher there. So I picked it up. I ran to them, put my stretcher down. And uh, it was a badly burned, badly injured young lady that had come out of corridor eight and picked her up and carried her. There was a triage medic point that had been set up in uh, the, uh, the north area of the Pentagon. And from there on, the next 45 minutes or so, I was running to and from the building, uh, empty stretcher up to the building or running up and getting another stretcher or just helping carry people out of the building. And uh, I'm a big guy. Um, that's something I'm physically suited to doing. It was also helping get people away from the building because the security forces at the Pentagon kept yelling at us anytime we got near the building and we're going into corridor eight to get people to carry them out that, you know, there's another plane coming in, get away. And that was the fear is that there was another plane that was going to hit the Pentagon. Uh, we did this and it, it was very hot work. Uh, we ran out of medical supplies and there was a clinic that was just inside the corridor eight entrance. About 30 of us went in and took anything that looked useful and wasn't nailed down. I remember coming out with an arm full of three oxygen bottles. They're about say six inches in diameter and about 25, 30 inches long. And uh, two of them happened to be empty, but I had no way of telling, mm -hmm. you know, it was medical supplies. Um, young soldier uh, risked his life going back into the building. He came out with a tray that had been prepared for a medical procedure. And when he went to hand it off to the nurse, she thanked him. And as she turned away, she said, not much good. It's a pap smear test kit. And, you know, that's got medical supplies on it, but it's not exactly configured uh, for burns and other trauma. Uh, but we took what we could. Uh, I, I was walking back to the building and uh, at this point, you know, we had diminished the number of people that we were carrying out because the, the patient load had just dropped down. And uh, I was walking along with another army major. We introduced each other, shook hands. So one of us, if something happened, you know, we know that the other guy was there and it was about 50 feet away from the corridor eight entrance when I heard a jet engine coming in low and fast from behind me and the security guards were just going ape. They were really yelling and raising, waving their hands, telling us to get back. And uh, by the time I stopped, turned around and looked up uh, that second, it was a jet fighter at about 400 feet and about 400 miles an hour. And going from heart pump and adrenaline terror to, okay, that's good. We got air cover over our heads. That's that transformation and uh i wasn't alone in that because it was okay we have somebody upstairs who's looking out for us let's get back in the building where we might be able to help people better but we had all the injured that we had taken out of corridor eight 
which was about 60 or 70. And some of them were very badly injured. They were put into private vehicles or anything that was moving that got them to a hospital. We had a couple of med flight helicopters land and take off with really badly injured, but getting ambulances to us because we were not on the side where the plane hit. And most of the first responders were going to where the fire was um, and getting support to where we had the injured was a challenge. But shortly after the jet flew overhead, we had uh, our injured t- were taken to hospital and ambulances and others. And uh, the rest of us picked up our equipment, our empty stretchers that we had. Uh, and about 100, 150 of us walked back into the inner five acre courtyard of the Pentagon, where we set up, uh, the medics set up a triage and uh, treatment area. There was an aid uh, litter team, which was a couple of strong guys and a medic. And, uh, and there were search and rescue teams set up, people who were going to go into the building and try to find injured people. And uh, that five-acre courtyard, it's a large open area center of the building, totally surrounded by the Pentagon. And uh, the wind was coming from the west, and it was very hot, very smoky. The smoke was uh, very dense, oily, bad-smelling, toxic-smelling smoke. And it was a mixture of jet fuel and building materials and office supplies and you name it. and it was just stuck in that that courtyard, and so were we. And we lined up, like I said, aid and litter search and rescue. And I was one on I was one of the first aid and litter teams. Uh, I was wearing my Army Class B uniform, which is short sleeve shirt, similar to this, but light green color. And uh, a Navy officer walked over and she said, "Give me your T-shirt. I need your T-shirt." Okay, well, we had advantages. What? So I take off my uniform shirt i had a white fruit of the loom on handed it to her and it was wet sweaty and funky because i'd been running and she walked over to a bucket of water and dunked my t-shirt in that water and pulled the t-shirt over her shoulder length brown hair and hit so she's looking out through the armhole so the the t-shirt is tight around her face and she wraps the rest of this wet t-shirt around her hair and uh, I'd put my uniform kind of back together and I walked over and I tapped her on the shoulder and I said, what's with the t-shirt? What gives? And she says, flash, I'm on search and rescue. Now, she's all of you know five foot four and 120 pounds uh, wearing a black long sleeve sweater because it was an office building. Like any office building, it's over uh, refrigerated and air conditioned in the summer. So the... Uh, some folks got cold and would wear sweaters or light jackets, but uh, she was wearing this sweater and knee length skirt and uh, low heel pumps. And she was ready to climb back into that building that was still on fire to look for people and just didn't want her hair to catch on fire. And uh, that takes a, a lot of common sense, experience, and bravery to do that. But uh, it was to me very remarkable because the Army, if my tank catches on fire, I've got a fire extinguisher. I pull the handle. If the fire goes out, great. Keep riding. If not, get off and walk. Um, in the Navy, the fire is on the ship. Fire kills ship and kills sailors. And it's really a long way to swim. So you fight the fire. And that's a, a difference in their training and approach. But I was really impressed with her stoicism and her bravery. 
um, courtyard. We were there for several hours. It was hot. It was frustrating because it was too hot and too smoky for even the professional firefighters who joined us in the courtyard to get into that, uh, that wing of the building. And uh, anytime one of us would leave to go out and check something, by then the security would not let us back in. So it, it was a diminishing force as the day got longer. But nobody was quitting and just saying, hey, we've had enough. Um, at one point, uh, I remember a couple of FBI agents came through wearing their little windbreakers largely emblazoned with FBI. And they gave us little bundles of flags like the, the utility guys have to mark where the utility lines are. And uh, they said, you know, if you're all just wasting time and waiting here, do us a favor, take these flags, walk and check the area. If you see anything unusual, like a piece of airplane or something else, uh, or something you can't readily identify, put a flag by it so we can find it later on. And we did that for a little while. But uh, that was uh, hot and frustrating because we didn't know what was going on in the outside world. And there were a lot of rumors amongst us volunteer first responders and from the world word from the outside that we were getting. Um, and there, we were just seeing 9-11, but we, our focal plane was inches, not feet, and it wasn't uh, detached and in person. I, I was in the courtyard until about three that afternoon uh, when the site and incident commander, because they by then had set up uh, an organization on the outside of the local firefighters, the Pentagon, and uh, Military District of Washington. And they'd established who was in control and how it was being handled. Uh, we were at risk in the, the courtyard due to the smoke and conditions. So they brought us back out and uh, we were brought to the impact site where there were people lined up like we were search and rescue aid letter teams ready to go back in to try to help. But still for them, uh, the fire was too hot. And uh, at that point, my boss saw me and I was an army spokesman. There was a need for, somebody who knew the building and knew the protocols, especially on casualties and handling the personnel side of, of those issues. So I ended up back in the Army Operations Center at a computer terminal and working as a public affairs media guy for the next several hours. <clears throat> uh, and that was largely frustrating because there were many good intentioned officers and senior non-commissioned officers who were trying to tell me, here's the name of somebody I know he died or she died, put their name on the list. And every time they would do that, I'd say, no, we can't because, you know, that that's a working list that doesn't really exist. It's a, a draft document, but it is not by any declaration because we have to have positive identification. That is a process where we have to have uh, medical, competent medical authority make the det determination, match dental records, DNA, anything, uh, and confirm it. Then the families get notified and there's a notification chain. And then we put their name on a list and it's released to the public. You know, you're asking for step one to be step 17 instantly. That's not happened. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was a very frustrating time. Uh, I then got asked, about six o'clock, they were doing a proof of life press conference where Mr. Rumsfeld, Secretary of the White, Secretary of the Army, Tommy White, 
General Hugh Shelton, who's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and Senator Warren and Levin, who are the ranking Republican and Democrat from the Senate Armed Forces Committee. They were doing a press conference in the Pentagon press room, which was off of Corridor 7. And since I knew most of the Pentagon press corps by sight, and, you know, man, I, I think I'm a, an easygoing uh, teddy bear of a guy, but I'm six foot two, and, you know, 220, 230 at the time. So I'm a big guy to most folks. Um, they wanted me to go and help escort the media, bring them into the building. And uh, going to the SECDEF entrance, which was up between corridors eight and nine, and that was where they, they had brought them into security. And there were 70 or 80 of them. We got them through security quickly. And it was the Pentagon press corps is normally kind of feisty because that's their building too. They work there day to day. Um, and they're very territorial that they pay for their, their space to do their operations. And the Pentagon press corps was very uh, compliant because they had been in the building when it was hit. So uh, they had the same, I had the impression that they had the same feeling that they were shocked and angry that somebody had tried to kill them and uh, they wanted to hear what was next. We brought them in. Uh, the, the press conference was very brief with Mr. Rumsfeld summarizing, saying, you hit us, you hurt us, but the Pentagon is open and has been open for business. Uh, we'll be open for business tonight, tomorrow, and for the future. You'll hear from us soon. And uh, after getting the media out of the building, after the press conference was over, uh, I then had to get my stuff out of my office, which was behind the crime scene because the FBI owned that portion of the Pentagon that had been impacted. And anything in that crime scene uh, was subject to the investigation. Well, my car keys, my wallet, uh, personal items were down there at my desk. I had other coworkers, uh, Elaine, her husband came by and he said, yeah, Elaine's gone home. She's safe but her purse is still down there. You know where it's at? Yeah, I do. And uh, the only problem was there was an MP between me and there. Well, I got a clipboard, a flashlight, and I had found a hard hat earlier in the day. And, and it's an army truism. If you know what you're doing or you look like you know what you're doing and you have a clipboard and a hard hat and a flashlight, Sarge, I need to go down and check something at corridor six. Roger, sir, just be safe. You know, safe. Things have changed and the power's out. Got it. Yeah. So, uh, uh, Elaine, who I'm still in touch with, uh, shared recently that to her, one of the funniest things that she heard of that day was that there I came clumping down the hallway, armful of stuff with her purse dangling off my arm, uh, in a blackened building that was full of smoke. Um, made it home that night, got cleaned up, got to see my wife and kids. And, uh, Oh, dark early the next morning, I was on my way back into the Pentagon because I was emergency essential. And uh, this time, however, I got to wear the camouflage uniform, the, the battle dress utilities, which are infinitely more comfortable and more practical. And uh, when I got to the Pentagon, they wouldn't allow us to park near the building because that area had been, was again, part of the crime scene. It was under FBI control. But we parked in Pentagon City and in the pre-dawn light was walking to the Pentagon and the Pentagon, the west side was still on fire. The corridor three area was black. There was no power. It was just this segment where all the lights were off. 
and then corridor two, that area was real brightly lit up and the building was lit behind it. All the office lights were on. And uh, corridor two entrance, as we walked across this abandoned parking lot, it's the realization that the cars that are here are people who never left or who never are going to leave the Pentagon. And uh, it's men and women, uh, all services. Civilians were wearing like blue jeans and, and sport coat and work boots. I was in BDUs, others were in BDUs. Aviators were wearing their flight suits, but it was the, the more casual field dress. And we're walking across this empty parking lot in the pre-dawn light. And as we're getting closer to the building, military police and security forces are checking our bags and our IDs and asking us questions. And we have to go up and through a security phalanx, again with bomb sniffing dogs and a magnometer and having our bags search to go into a building that's still on fire and without power to do our job. And our jobs were preparing information and helping with communications to make uh, better decisions for our leaders, by our leaders, and to get them out uh, to the people who needed them. And that's a little thing. You know, first responders, they put on their crash gear or their body armor. They go after the bad guys or go into fires. But uh, the dedication and determination to go back into that building in those conditions. And I wasn't alone. Um, you know, when I say I or me, it's us and we, because by and large, the American people uh, have a great deal to be proud of, of how uh, the people of the Pentagon comported themselves that day and the days after. Um, so uh, thank you for sharing all that. Now, first off, before we move forward, um, I kind of want to jump back a little bit, like the, the very beginning of everything. When the, So the first plane hit the, the tower, um, and I don't want to muddy waters with like a bunch of speculation of the information, but um, how much information did you have at the Pentagon after that first plane hit? At first, it was just what we saw on whatever TV channel was on. And each one of, I want to say each one of the desk officers. So there were 12 media desk officers in our division and we're divided into three teams. So uh, each one of us had a TV on our desk. It was this weird little contraption. It had a nine inch cathode ray tube. So it was black and white, mm -hmm. uh, but it had or video for four stations or one, and you could have audio for one station. And typically you'd put on a, a plug-in headset to listen to it because you didn't want to have all the noise. And I typically would leave mine on Fox or one of the morning shows. And it was just kind of a periscope to the outside world. I just happened to see the first report um, and I don't want to claim that I was the first one in my office, but I, I remember saying, hey, something's going on in New York City. A plane hit a building. And from having done two years in New York City, um, you know, the, the commute time, when you have all the pedestrians walking to work and they're on the sidewalk below a skyscraper and you have something happen up high, all the glass and debris that falls down, um, you can have a real serious casualty event just from that. And as it developed within minutes, it went from being an unknown type aircraft to being a multi-engine jet to being, hey, it was a, a large airliner. Well, it wasn't a, who was it? And I think it was right at about nine o'clock, they were starting to say, we think it was a hijacked airliner. 
because that's when the news was coming out of the FAA that they had problems uh, tracking the number of flights from the eastern seaboard. And uh, we didn't have any precise knowledge. Uh, we saw what we saw at 903. Um, and then us getting hit at 937 uh, was, you know, that was pretty traumatic to the Pentagon and the Pentagon workforce. There are 20,000 people that work in this 6 million square foot building. And I, what I say is about 19,000 did exactly what they were told and were supposed to do. They evacuated and went home or went to someplace else that they were supposed to, to go to work, an alternate headquarters or an alternate site. Um, there were 125 uh, that died in the building or died from injuries. And there were another couple hundred that were injured inside the building that were evacuated out. Uh, then there were several hundred of what I call God's special little idiots who made it out safely and then kept running back in to try to help and try to make a difference. And numbers wise, um, that's one of the reasons why I share my story as, as often as I do is because as a historian, I recognize that as long as I draw breath, I'm a living artifact and I can answer people's questions. And if somebody wants to say, well, it was a conspiracy and it was really a bomb or it was a cruise missile, uh, then I can have a chat with them. Uh, likewise, the people I work with who were in the World Trade Center, and if somebody wants to say, no, it was all explosives and it was a planned job by whoever, okay. So ask any of them if they saw the miles and miles of cables that would have taken to do that kind of controlled explosion. Because uh, it's not neat like Hollywood would have you believe where mm -hmm. you know a little packet of C4 does a huge amount of damage on a four-inch thick, nine-inch wide I-beam. Uh, which is what's the outside of the, the World Trade Center was. So, after the uh, planes hit the towers, did you was was there a sense at any any point really that like there's a plane headed towards the Pentagon right now, or was it it happened and now we react to that? The again, I, I had told Elaine, "Hey, get your stuff, get out of here. We're next," and, and that was more fear-based than deep thinking. Uh, my, my initial thought in the, the phrase that stuck in my mind for a long time was signature targets. And it was those symbols of American or Western power and might. So the Pentagon, the World Trade Center, um, you, you could have gone to the White House or the Capitol. Uh, here in the Midwest, it could have been Sears Tower, the Hancock Tower, any of these big buildings that are iconic and recognizable by their facade and, and their structure. The arch in St. Louis, the Space Needle out in Seattle. And I did not know, empirically know, that there was another plane inbound um, until after it hit us. Um, I remember making a comment to one of the other officers um, and saying, well, I hope somebody's getting the stingers warmed up and have them up on the roof. And that was a stingers are a man portable air defense rocket that goes out five kilometers in their heat seeking warheads. But that, that's one of those where by the time you get it warmed up, pointed at the target and shoot, um, you know, five kilometers for a jet aircraft flying at five to 600 miles an hour is not that far. Mm -hmm. And great, you, you blow up a plane at altitude, 
uh, and it spreads out over several miles, you're still going to have a lot of dead people. Yeah. And that's a, uh, they didn't have stingers on the roof. Uh, it was uh, one of those, that was a shock and a little bit that you know, we were passive on air defense capability. But uh, just like that fighter plane that I was happy to see, I told you about, mm. I found out months later, as millions of other Americans did, uh, that that fighter plane had launched early on that morning when they were just supposed to go up, find, identify, and follow. Because that was the methodology that U.S. military jet aircraft did on suspected hijacked aircraft. Get up there, find it, identify it, and follow it. Don't shoot it down. So that aircraft that flew over me that I was happy to see had no ammunition for its guns and no missiles in its rails. And that pilot and their wingmen were talking, if we are told how to knock down a jet, uh, a suspected hijacked jet aircraft, how do we do it? Do we kamikaze into the cockpit straight on? Do we come down at it from above? You know, they, they were talking about how to bounce into an aircraft and take a suspected hijacked aircraft out of the sky based on orders from the ground. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, talk about a crappy choice. Um, well, you know, your 40 million aircraft. Right. And you suspect it's been hijacked. Well, you don't know. So we didn't know in the building whether one was coming at us or not, at least in my office, we did. Um, from 9.03 to 9.30, there was a lot of activity, but I don't remember seeing any panic and there wasn't any evacuation of the Pentagon. Um. During the events, everything kind of happening all at once, um, were you able to talk to your family at all, let them know that you were okay, or was it pretty much impossible for that time? Well, when I came up from the Army Operations Center, and I gave you a very condensed version, but I got up to my office, I made sure that, well, Elaine is not here, but the lights were still on in the media room, and the, the computers were still working, and the phones were ringing off the hook, which was not unusual because we would routinely get uh, 50, 60 calls a day, but there's nobody there answering the phones. I got to my desk and I wanted an outside line to call uh, my then wife who lived uh, in Dale City, which is 25 miles south of the Pentagon. And to get an outside line, I had to answer the phone. And it was a reporter who had a routine question about, and I don't even remember what it was, but it was like, don't ask, don't tell. He said, well, kind of busy. You know, something happened. There's been an explosion. Oh, you want to talk about that? Nope. Click. <laughs> and hung up. Got another. When I cleared the line, it was another reporter with another question. Nope. Click. Okay. Dial tone. Called home. Hey, I'm alive. If you've seen the TV, uh, I'm alive and I'm heading out of the building, uh, which was a little white like because I then went and cleared offices and trying to make sure everybody was out. But uh, so, uh, my then wife, yeah, she knew that I was alive and safe and that I would had not been killed in the attack. Um, I didn't pick up my cell phone, but the cell phones, uh, the signal was overwhelmed. We didn't, I don't remember my cell phone being of use at any time that day, not until much later. Um, coming back to the Pentagon the, the following day uh, and, you know, just keep, bearing in mind everything that just happened, had happened, uh, 
what, what was that like to come back to that building and, you know, see the condition that it was in now and what had just transpired, you know, hours beforehand? Um, I, what, the second day, I mean, what, how, how did you handle that? You know, and I wanted to get back to work. Um, working as a spokesman is not necessarily my first love or why I joined the Army, but it was my duty. Um, the realization that because I was so close to the events on September 11th, I did not have a very big worldview until later on the 11th, later on the day in the 11th. And as I was going home, listening to the radio, uh, and watching just a little bit of TV before I went to sleep on the evening of the 11th. Uh, but we didn't know what was next. We didn't know if there was another shoe that was going to fall, if there was another series of attacks. One of the um, one of the tenets of terrorism and using it as a weapon is you get your opponent uh, knocked off center, and then you keep driving with other attacks on a different platform. And the events and the attacks of September 11th, the bad guys, uh, there was an evil elegance in what they did. They couldn't build a bomb big enough and they didn't have the straight military capability strong enough to do any harm to us. So they, they looked at it and they said, we want to accomplish this. What tools can we get? And they identified that transatlantic aircraft flying from East Coast to West Coast uh, on a business day early in the morning are going to take off and especially that Tuesday was selected apparently by the hijackers because of the relatively low passenger load and high fuel loads on each of those aircraft. So those aircraft and flights were deliberately chosen uh, and that's why they had those teams of hijackers identified and organized and there to get on those craft. Uh, and they were counting on us responding to hijacking. And I went and I looked it up. The last real domestic hijacking in the United States prior to 9-11 was the mid-1980s. And uh, the, the only successful one was like 1982. And it was not all that successful. But hijackings was one individual or a group of individuals stealing the plane, flying it to a location, and using the plane, the crew, and the passengers as bargaining chips to get something they wanted. You know, typically, okay, fly me to Havana on the ground in Havana, great. Until you let me go, you know, I want all my colleagues freed. I want a million dollars. I want, you know, whatever. The hijackers on 9-11 did things differently. They killed the flight crew. The, they eliminated the, the, uh, the train to people on the flight deck who could pilot the plane, put themselves in control of the aircraft. And then they went through a protocol on the plane to say, hey, we've hijacked the plane. There's a bomb on board to pacify the passengers and rest of the fl flight crew. Uh, and then very deliberately turned off their transponders, changed directions, and they followed their own flight paths and planning into the World Trade Center. Uh, their goal was to hit the buildings, as I understand it, as near to simultaneously as possible. The first one uh, was not exactly where they wanted to hit the building. Uh, the second one hit about the sweet spot that they had planned, which is the sky lobby, which was about the 86th floor, which gave 
access to the fuel that was bulk being carried in the, the hijacked airliners fuel cells, uh, that fuel hits uh, inside the building and then falls down the elevator shafts. It vaporizes as it falls. And there is a fire combustion and explosive power from that. Uh, while they've structurally damaged the building at its potentially weakest point, that skylock. Um, you know, again, there's a certain amount of looking at the problem and saying how they wanted to solve the problem with the tools that they were able to find and then using our own tactics, techniques, and procedures against us. It was the only, the, the FAA crowning the aircraft and saying, clear the skies, everything lands. That's what stopped the 9-11 attacks. Uh, but kudos to Flight 93, uh, the 40 souls on board that aircraft who, after they realized and understood what was happening on the ground in New York and DC and realized that they were in the same predicament, decided that they would not go passively. And they were fighting for control of the aircraft when, when it crashed at Shanksville. And I think that they're, uh, you know, I've been to ground zero in New York City. I've obviously been to the Pentagon. Um, those are both hallowed places for me. Uh, I got to confess, I have lacked the uh, the moral courage to make it to Shanksville because uh, those those people, uh, what they do is just uh, beyond the pale of outstanding. And uh, they, they stood up and fought back. So. Hey, it's Erica with McHenry County Living. If you're like me, you're always wondering what's going on this weekend? Where are we gonna take the kids? What kind of shows and events and festivals are coming up? Well, look no further than The Weekender. It comes out every first Wednesday of the month. All you have to do is subscribe at mchenrycountyliving.com slash The Weekender. I imagine experiencing all this um, mentally um, is quite something to take on. Um, how, how have you handled uh, dealing with what happened with the Pentagon on that day? Um, and what, what we really haven't discussed is if you lost, I, I assume you did lose uh, friends and coworkers uh, on that day as well. Well, there were, uh, let's unpack that in order as you asked it. How, how did I handle it? Uh, Initially, uh, going back to work and being in the Pentagon and having something to do uh, was very helpful to me. I am uh, by nature, and, and even though I'm getting older and slowing down some, I'm kinetic. I need to be moving and working with people. Um, so being in there on September 12th was my day one. And it was a, uh, in, in the cavalry where I grew up on tanks and armored personnel carriers, you would train on the fully functioning tank and learn how to be proficient. And then you would turn off systems and still have to do the job. So you would do degraded mode gunnery and still train to the same standard. And after the attacks in the Pentagon, uh, our offices were blocked off. We had no access to our electronic files, our email, phone numbers, phone lines, we were standing around borrowed desks in the DOD press room. And it was like degraded mode public relations for the army. And instead of doing, uh, okay, we're gonna put out a press release and send it out electronically. Now we're back to the Flintstones and we're, <laughs> we're walking around and doing things very retail. 
And uh, that was actually very therapeutic for me because I was doing something and I was with people that had, had the same experience. We were very fortunate in Army Public Affairs. Uh, we had two of our uh, our larger team uh, were had offices down on the first floor D ring off a of corridor four, and uh, both of them had been injured in the attack. Um, one had had his his face smashed into a computer screen, so he had a big knot on his forehead. And he was an Army reservist, so we teased him about it that it improved his looks. Uh, but he was back to work, um, and he probably came back a little bit too soon. But uh, General Maud, I had worked with General Maud when he was a one-star in Europe, and uh, he was the senior officer who died during the Pentagon attack. Uh, the plane pretty much hit right at his office. Uh, on September 12th, I thought young captain that worked in the uh, fort for General Maud uh, nobody had seen her. Uh, she was not accounted for. She was on the missing list. And by now we were starting to put together the list of, it's called dust one, duty status unknown, duty status undetermined whereabouts unknown, dust one. And uh, uh, her name was on the list. And uh, that, that was kind of sobering because she was a very bright young officer and uh professional fondness for her. She was a West Pointer. I'm not a West Pointer, but we still got along and worked well together. And there was just not knowing how many people were dead and missing because 20,000 people working in the building, so many had just gone to alternate locations or gone home and getting them to call in and report in, that became one of our priorities. Um, it was very busy. There wasn't a lot of time to sit around and uh, navel gaze or weep and keeping our eyes on our jobs and not watching TV and, and the reported news. Uh, and even then, we were starting to be questioned by the media. OK, who do you know who was here at the Pentagon? Who's from Pennsylvania? We got a, a reporter from Pennsylvania wants to talk to somebody from. And there was a little bit of that matchmaking and, and getting an individual and making sure that that person is ready and willing to talk to the media and then supporting them. So uh, I would say for the next two weeks, uh, the, the operational tempo from about six in the morning until eight or nine every night was very, very intense. And it was very retail. But my day one was when I came back. Somebody else's day one was my day 10 and their first day back in the office with all the attendant uh, emotion that they've also been not around and they haven't been going at the same speed we have been. And they've been watching uh, the, the broadcast TV and, and getting the stories re-traumatized essentially, um, having to be cognizant of where they were in that process was important. We worked with chaplains in mental health. They put around crisis teams and they would come around on a couple of weekly basis to talk to us. And that was helpful, especially integrating folks who were coming back in later. Uh, we got news that uh, the young officer that I thought had died, um, she had been out for a morning PT run. So she's out doing her physical fitness. She had gone on a long run. Um, 
was walking back down corridor four when the plane hit the building. So she had uh, a little a satchel with a ID card and uh, a wallet in one hand and car keys in the other and uh, wet hair from heaven taking a shower. Boom, knocked on her butt. Uh, flames in front of her. She uh, evacuated the building, loaded up her truck with injured people, took them to the hospital, then went home and started working remotely and didn't think anything about it. Then two days later, somebody said, hey, you're on the missing list. Uh, and getting a call from her that she was alive, that was very pleasant. But uh, unfortunately, that was an anomaly. We had more of them where it's, hey, this person's been confirmed. We have an ID. Uh, and then my team and I were working on pulling those lists together um, to get the, the names, making sure that the next kid had been notified and that the uh, yeah, positive ID had been made. And that's that's rough exacting work, and we weren't we weren't doing it in the best conditions. Um, once I left the Pentagon in two thousand three, um, that's like a diver coming up. If you're into scuba diving, you're down at depth, you're at sixty feet, and you come up too fast. Well, that's what happened to me when I left the Pentagon for good in two thousand three, and I'm a big guy in an army uniform in Chicago, and as I'm meeting people. And I'm being introduced around as, hey, this is Ryan. He was in the Pentagon and he was there on 9-11. And then Joe Sixpack, the civilians going, oh, wow, that's that's horrible. What was that like? And that was the hard part is how do you go from uh, social business interaction down in the loop to suddenly, okay, I'm talking about one of the worst days in my life. And how do I unpack that uh, succinctly and, and continue doing business? And uh, 2003, 2004 was very rough. I was fortunate though, I got involved with Willow House, which is a local nonprofit that does grief counseling. And they had been hired by the FBI to work with victim families. In 2004, uh, another World Trade Center survivor self-identified to Willow House and said, glad you're helping the families, but what about us? There are about 30 or 40 of us out here uh, that Joe Dittmar had identified World Trade Center survivors primarily. And uh, I ran into Joe in the early summer of 2004, and he pulled me into the, the Willow House circle. And we met uh, on a every 10-day, two-week period with all the other survivors. And we formed our own little VFW where we would come in, and uh, they had trained crisis grief counselors and it was really well done. Uh, they helped us in getting us to talk about what we had seen and experienced. And it was a sharing of stories. And, and there was a therapeutic value in it because uh, a World Trade Center survivor who felt guilty for having done everything absolutely right and made it out of the building alive, um, when his number, his phone number is later given to a distraught family member who calls him up not once, not twice, but many times screaming at him that, you know, he left um, his loved one to, to die in the World Trade Center and how dare he. And, and having to say, no, you did the right thing. You know, your business, the company that gave away your cell phone number to that guy, that was wrong. Um, you know, you, you're a victim in this. You're, you're not Superman. You can't save everyone. 
and for me, being around that group was the, the first real positive steps other than self-medicating. Uh, and I later on, I went into, uh, when I was retired from active duty, I went to the VA uh, and had some one-on-one -on -one counseling for PSD and uh, have been striving ever since. Instead of letting it define me, is I've been trying to make 9-11 a growth point and making sure that I'm a better person because of it and that I'm contributing more because of it, not curled up in a corner, uh, fearful. And so I, I've been trying to make it positive growth rather than respond to terror. So um, one of the major images coming out of uh, the attacks is the uh, flag that was draped over the Pentagon. Um, I don't, I, I don't recall how far, how long after that that happened. Um, but I imagine when you saw that, um, there, there was an emotion involved in seeing that flag on the Pentagon. How, how was that for you? Um, I was out there uh, that day and uh, it, I always like our flag. Uh, I am uh, hopelessly patriotic when it comes to the flag. And uh, it was very impactful. It was September 12th uh, that the flag went out. And that's a, a large garrison type, type flag. And uh, uh, President uh, Bush was coming by. He wanted to see the Pentagon. And uh, you know, the impact site, one of the things that uh, conspiracy theorists have is, oh, well, they, they graveled over all the evidence. And uh, they just put down gravel to hide things because they didn't want people to find it. Well, the Pentagon was actually built down in lowlands right by the Potomac River. So it's the soft uh, river bottom. They picked up all the airplane debris that was above ground and had collected that off into North Parking. And that was the FBI and members of the Old Guard, which is the, the uh, military district of Washington's Army Ceremonial Unit. Um, painstakingly picked all this stuff up. And on September 12th, started laying this base of gravel and padding because they had to bring in heavy equipment to lift up sections of the Pentagon to do recovery operations. Because the plane, as it went in and it hit right at the ground level, near corridor four in a shallow angle to corridor five. And it went through, and the Pentagon is a limestone facade with poured concrete walls and floors. And it was poured back in the 1940s during the war and they skimped on steel because they needed it for tanks and for weapons. So they poured thick concrete. That was the alternative. Well, the aircraft went through, the fire burned, uh, the concrete in some cases was already old. So there were structural problems there. So the first things to do was to get in into the Pentagon, put in pilings and shore it up so it didn't collapse on the search and rescue teams and then bring in heavy equipment because we had uh, our comrades, the remains that had to be recovered. And all the time that that was being done, um, it was also being video recorded for evidentiary purposes. And part of the disconnect was the FBI owned that segment of the Pentagon that had been hit as a crime scene. So my office with my files, <laughs> Okay. Uh, was a, in a crime scene. I couldn't get back to it for several weeks. And uh, 
in the, the book that we just wrote, one of the other contributors was a 19-year-old college intern who was working with me in the Pentagon. And she reminded me of that day. When we got to go back into our office, and this is three or four weeks after the, the attack, it was, you can go in, you can take paper files, don't bother taking electronics because it's worthless. Um, and uh, if it's cloth, it has to go in these special bags. Anything that's cloth has to be washed or decontaminated because it's been exposed to toxic materials. And if it's plastic, this is how you handle it. If it's a book, this is how you handle it. But handling of materials uh, and, and the atmospherics in the Pentagon, the air quality was very questionable for several weeks afterwards because there was high particulate soot in the air to the point of if you had papers laying out on the desk for any period of time and they overlapped each other just a little bit, the top one, you'd pick it up and you could see its outline in soot on the lower one. Um, and we'd ask about the air quality and they'd say, yep, we're monitoring it. It's no, no problems, no, no significant threat to health. Uh, that, <laughs> that remains to be seen. But, uh, um, I, and I believe you mentioned this a little bit earlier, but um, the entire time from September 11th on, Pentagon has never closed. The Pentagon is like a, a big aircraft carrier out at sea. So the earlier example of the young lady in the courtyard where she's, hey, you know, search and rescue, don't want her hair to catch fire. Um, even during the attack, there were segments of the Pentagon that did not evacuate because they were uh, the hardened portions of the building that were designed to withstand attack. And they were critical in the operations of national security. And beyond that, I don't know, and I'm not going to say. <laughs> um. So you had you had briefly mentioned, and I just want I'll, we'll get into this now. Um, you and a number of other people are telling your stories in a book. Um, how many how many other contributors were there? Okay, uh, through the the coalition of survivors that grew out of the Midwest, uh, we kind of realized that a lot of the survivors of 9/11 are out on the Eastern Seaboard. People who live and work in the tri-state area of New York, New Jersey, Connecticut or in the D.C. area, Maryland, and Northern Virginia. Um, but there were a lot of business travelers from Chicago who were in New York for a business in the World Trade Center and found them working in the buildings as they were hit. Um, you know, they're, they're incidental victims who've now come back out to the Midwest or people from the Eastern Seaboard who've migrated this way. And... Uh, Again, through that Willow House initial connection, we've stayed in touch uh, about you know, seven years ago. We formed a nonprofit called American Pride Incorporated. And uh, American Pride is survivors who go and talk at schools and libraries and in supportive organizations to help people understand what we went through that day and share our stories and to support first responders in the U.S. military. And uh, we... American Pride is the author and publisher, put that in quote marks on this book. We've got six World Trade Center survivors, four of them that were in the towers, two that were at the World Trade Center. One was coming up from the Fulton Street subway station. One was in the uh, Millennium Hotel right there at World Trade Center. It was right across the street. And then myself as a Pentagon survivor and a young lady 
who was 19 at the time. She was a college intern. And her day two in the Pentagon was September 11th. So she had been at work in the Pentagon all of one day for about six hours for the orientation. And then the next morning she had arrived. And shortly after that, the plane hit the building. And uh, her school said, okay, internship's over, go home. Her parents said, honey, we want you to come home. Her boyfriend, now husband said, hey, I really want you to come home. And she said, well, you know what? No, I'm not going to do that. If you want to come down to Maryland and visit with me, you can, but I'm going back to work as soon as I can get in. And uh, she was in and a great young lady. Uh, She's now a mother of five, a successful businesswoman, and is going back to nursing school because at this point of her life, she wants to be ready to give back if somebody needs help. And uh, very proud of her for sharing her story because it's a different perspective. Mm-hmm. And uh, great kid, now a great lady. <laughs> uh, what is the name of the book and where can people find um, it? Okay, it's available on Amazon. Uh, the book is titled 9-11 Survivor Stories, Midwest Memories. And the commonality, again, is uh, all of the survivors are either from the Midwest or have strong ties to the Midwest. And it's available on Amazon as a paperback for $20. Ebook price is $9.11. And yeah, that's a shameless plug for that. But we're also on Kindle Unlimited. So if you're a Kindle subscriber, um, it's a free service there. Uh, One thing that I, I always back into this, early 2004, uh, I was approached uh, by AT&T. They were doing a fundraiser to raise money for the Pentagon Memorial Fund. And uh, I was asked, you know, they, hey, we need help. We want to find somebody who has, you know, was a Pentagon survivor or who's willing to talk about, you know, their time in the Pentagon. They said, okay, I'm in. And they said, no, that you don't understand. We need a Pentagon survivor. And I went, yeah, I'm here. What do you want? And they couldn't believe that my luck you know, the, the army guy they were talking to fit the bill. Um, got introduced to Gary Sinise, who's a great American from Blue Island, Illinois. So he's a Chicago area, uh, born and raised, helped find, found uh, Steppenwolf, uh, the uh, nonprofit theater company. Yeah. And of course, he portrayed Lieutenant Dan in everybody's favorite movie, Forrest Gump. And uh, Gary was. Uh, and just formed a band in 2004, which quickly became the Lieutenant Dan Band. Mm-hmm. And he came out and uh, attended the luncheon where I spoke. And that was a very tough, um, tough time for me to talk about my time in the Pentagon. It was not nearly as cogent or coherent as I've been here. I was a lot more emotional. And uh, Gary wrote the preface for our book. So we're really proud of that and uh, proud of his involvement and support of us. And uh, it's a 183-page book. One uh, media person that I was talking to about it, she goes, oh, that's a quick read. And I said, no, it's not. It's a hard read. Um, we, we were very careful with the language we used in the, in the book. Um, we don't want to traumatize people, but there's, it's definitely in the uh, mature adolescent and above. And uh, we the neat thing to me is it's all volunteer. So all of the contributors have given their story to American Pride uh, for their 9-11 story and the arc afterwards. Um, American Pride's the nonprofit. All proceeds are going to go back to our 
nonprofit in their efforts to go in and talk at schools and libraries and to help first responders. So I'm proud to be part of it. And uh, the neat thing as far as connections to McHenry County, um, I was at, uh, I had been part of a center sphere networking group that met at Panera on Highway 14 in Crystal Lake. Mm-hmm. And uh, my uh, economics changed and my focus changes where I was doing my business. And I uh, drifted away from them. But one day they said, hey, we have this lady who's coming in. She's local and she's an author. She's going to talk about self-publishing. Think you might be interested. And in the beauty of pandemic and Zoom calls, I got to attend uh, this presentation by Roxanne Borsma, who is uh, sistersromance.com. She's a self-published author, has about 15 books in print right now. And Roxanne talked for an hour in a center sphere Zoom. And at the end of it, I got her email address and I reached out to her and I said, hi, I'm Ryan. Here's my story. I want to talk to you. And uh, we talked and I developed a plan from that conversation and then went back to American Pride and we developed the overall approach for the book. But uh, this book definitely has its roots here in the Midwest and specifically here in Crystal Lake and McHenry County. Uh, If it had not been for that chance uh, invitation to a Zoom call and getting that information and making those connections uh, because we wrote this book from about August of 2020 to today. So it was published and released officially on the 1st of September. So just over a year from, I have an idea, would this possibly work to pulling it all together and getting it released? And I'm very proud of uh, all of us for having done it, but, our uh, our website for American Pride was redone and uh, looks a lot better and functions a lot better, courtesy of Vanessa Baker out of Fast Forward Marketing. Sue Doby is uh, helping us with public relations and pushing out information about American Pride in the book. She's also supporting several of the local events that are happening. Uh, we're looking to do a book signing up in uh, at uh, Read Between the Lines in. Woodstock in the square in Woodstock near early October. So there's a lot of good things that are happening uh, in the McHenry County area uh, because of the book and because of the 20th anniversary. Uh, I know you also have a few events coming up on the 11th. Uh, do you want to tell everybody about what you have coming if they want to come see you and uh, hear some, your story firsthand? Well, and the challenge is I'm going to be making brief remarks at uh, commemorative events in Wakanda at 9.30. That'll be at the Heroes of Freedom Memorial, which is on Main Street, just south of 176 in Wakanda. And that is a very beautiful uh, memorial. Includes a beam from the World Trade Center set on the Pentagon base. Four benches, one for each of the aircraft that were hijacked. And there's a wall behind uh, the memorial with all of the names of those who died that day. Uh, The flower garden is filled with uh, soil taken from Shanksville. So there are physical components of each one of the sites uh, represented in that memorial. And I was part of the steering committee that helped put that together. And I'm grateful that the city of Wakanda is letting me come and talk. Um, But I'm going to talk briefly about uh, the importance of the day and uh, 
you know, their contributions in having the memorial and how that's important. After that, I'm going to go to Crystal Lake and in the Union Cemetery, which is on Woodstock Street, just east, excuse me, just west of uh, City Hall in uh, Crystal Lake. Uh, the American Legion Post 171 is doing a uh, ceremony and they're working with the city of Crystal Lake, the fire and police departments. And it's a lot of agencies coming together. It's a longer uh more drawn out ceremony, but it's very, very heartfelt. And uh, it's very neat what the Legion and uh, a lot of people are doing to put that together. And I'm gonna offer some remarks there. I'm gonna close out September 11th down at Black and Gray Brewing Company in East Dundee. And that's probably the most tasty stop of the day. Uh, we're doing a fundraiser for the East Dundee Firefighters Association and the owners of Black and Gray, Chris and Teresa Kennedy. Our friends of ours, he's a uh, lieutenant in, I think, the Elgin Fire Department. I should know that, but um, he's also a really good brewer and he makes really good beer. And I like beer. And uh, they're sweet people. We've helped them with other events in the past. And uh, I'm going to go and offer brief remarks there. Uh, and, and that's a way to raise money and raise awareness for the first responders. Um, next day, September 12th. The village of Northbrook is doing a, uh, a motorcycle rally. They have a full week of activities because Northbrook actually had a lot of victim families and they have a lot of connection to 9-11. They have a field of flags that are going out. Um, and myself and Don Baxo, Don is a World Trade Center survivor out of Northwest Indiana. Don's coming up and he and I, uh, founded American Pride. He and I will be speaking there. And uh, in each of these, it's just brief remarks. If you really want to hear my story, I'm also talking to a number of public libraries in the Northern Illinois area. Several of those, uh, Aurora, for example, is doing a live webcast. Warrenville Public Library is doing a live webcast, and I imagine they'll have it recorded. Uh, if you want me to come and talk, Find uh, your your local librarian and tell them, hey, bring Ryan in or bring one of the World Trade Center survivors in for a talk. And we'll do what we can to get one of us in there uh, to share our story. And it's not that we like to do it. Uh, there's a, uh, anybody likes to be in the spotlight, but you know, I have an obligation to answer questions and to share what I saw and what I did uh, and what I experienced as a living artifact for others. You know, you, you were 20 years ago. Uh, one reporter I was talking to was uh, 17 and in high school. One young man just the other night came up after my event um, at the Helen Plum Library down in uh, Lombard. And he said, I was seven years old. And I just remember how scared I was in school. Uh, turned out that, uh, if I remember correctly, one of his parents was flight crew on one of the United airplanes, not that was in the involved, but was he didn't know if his parents were on the plane. He didn't know what was happening. And here's a 27 year old man who's grown up in the shadow of 9-11. And apparently I was the first person that he had heard and spoke to in person. He's watched a lot of the, the things on TV. Um, all of us that come and talk at schools and at libraries and, and whatnot, 
uh, we understand that people are going to have questions and we do our very best to give them our best response uh, in what we saw and what we did. And it may not be perfect, but uh, we do what we can. Um, I just have one last thing I, I just want to ask you about. Um, uh, years ago, I was able to go to Washington, D.C., and I got to see the Pentagon Memorial. Um, have you gone back and seen it? Uh, I'm very fortunate. Yes, I have. Um, I helped raise the funds for it in 2004 and five and on. And uh, uh, worked with the Pentagon Memorial Fund. In 2008, I was working for uh, the Pritzker Military Library in downtown Chicago. And Colonel Pritzker is the cousin of the current governor. Mm -hmm. uh, but Colonel Pritzker, very interesting and dynamic individual. Um, has a, a military library that's free and open to the public. With At the time, we had some very dynamic programming. It, it, guests coming in and talking about their books. And uh, Colonel Pritzker said, okay, I want you to go represent my organization because I've donated a lot of money uh, to this and I don't want to go. And uh, the upshot was I had uh, myself, my wife, and three kids, and they put us on a plane and flew us out, put us up in a hotel, and I got to go to the dedication ceremony. And uh, very proud of how that memorial came out and how quickly it coalesced and came together and the, the fusion of leadership and input from the federal government where they had to be very careful of the rules and regulations, uh, but saying, um, no, we're not gonna ask you to donate money, but this is very important. Um, <laughs> and uh, there's a bench for each one of uh, the victims. And if the bench, which is cast stainless steel, and they were cast in Indiana, and the benches are, are um, off the same mold. So they're all identical, but all personalized with a small plate for each of the individuals. And if the bench points to the building, that individual was on flight 77, American uh, airline 77. If the bench points away, the 125, uh, that means that they were Pentagon in the building. And the, the sobering thing about 9-11 is uh, the youngest victims were two and three year olds. There were infants, innocent babies that were killed. And there were 80 and 90 year olds that were killed who were on the planes. Um, and they're represented there at uh, the Pentagon Memorial. Likewise, they're also represented up at uh, Ground Zero. But uh, there were close to 300 people from 77 countries who died in the 9 11 attacks. It was not just attack against America. Uh, it was an attack against Western ideals and values. And it was an attack against uh, you know, peace and freedom. So I, I, I bear that in mind when I go back to DC. The last time I was out there, I think was 2011. Um, Henry Huntley, the, uh, the Lieutenant Colonel that he and I were standing at corridor four uh, trying to figure out where the meeting was. Uh, I was there in 2011 because he got promoted to become a brigadier general. Uh, and that was a nice occurrence to go back to DC to watch my battle buddy get promoted. And uh, my story with Henry is reflected in the book. Uh, it was good. I, I had to reach out, make, regain contact with him, get permission to put his, his story and mine in the book, mentioning him by name. But uh, 
every chance I go, uh, I, I every chance I get, I'll go to the, the memorial because there were four people that I, I knew uh, that I had worked with that uh, died in the attack. And, uh, you know, they're, they're real life people. Uh, the vast majority of the folks who died on 9-11, though, were innocent men, women, and children, civilians, businessmen and women traveling or at work, uh, kids traveling with their parents or on a school trip. Uh, there were fewer military that died in the 9-11 attacks than firefighters, 343 firefighters in New York, plus all the law enforcement officers, it takes it up to 403. Uh, uh, there were fewer in, in the Pentagon. You know, 125 dead on the ground in the Pentagon, 206 injured. And those are sobering numbers. That's a lot of people. Um, in a way, though, it's fortunate the plane hit where it did because that was a newly renovated section of the Pentagon, which had not been fully occupied. And it had better life safety features, sprinklers and, and smoke screens. Uh, where it went into the older wedge, uh, the fire damage was greater, uh, but uh, again, people had been moved out of there, so it was not a fully occupied part of the Pentagon. Sorry. Um, you said you mentioned uh, four people you knew. Um, what were their names? Oh, there's General Maud. And again, I, I worked with him uh, when he was one star in Germany. I'd worked with him also there in the Pentagon. Sergeant Major Lacey Ivory and uh, Sergeant Major Ivory and I in process the Pentagon about the same time. And uh, I never wanted a Pentagon assignment. I'm not that type of person that likes working in the headquarters with a lot of generals. And uh, he, we had a joke that, okay, which one of us is going to be the first one to get thrown out or leave? this place and uh, uh he worked with general maude and uh unfortunately he died in the attack kip taylor uh, was general maude's aide uh an executive officer so he was the front office coordinator that you know handled all of uh, the general's appointments the actions uh, kind of a traffic cop for the paperwork and actions that the general needed to see that day um uh, janice scott the person that we would go to when we needed money, she handled the public affairs uh, portion of the budget. And when I had lived and worked up in New York City and we needed money to do something, I would call her and say, I, you know, I need $40,000 for this project. And I'd either get told no outright or, okay, this is how you have to do it. Or she'd laugh at me and say, well, it's microscopic budget dust. We can find that somewhere, yeah. you know, because it's a billion or $2 billion budget that they're dealing with overall. You know, I think about all the different uh, the people that were there lined up ready to go back into the burning building to put themselves in harm's way. And, and we were ill-prepared and ill-equipped. We were going in as we were, not as we wanted to be. Mm -hmm. But uh, there was a lot of dedication and people trying to do the right thing in really adverse conditions. Uh, Ryan, I, I really appreciate you um, reaching out to me and uh, sharing your story with uh, the, my listeners on the podcast. I know that uh, they will appreciate it. And, um, you know, I, I really want to thank you for your service as well from the bottom of my heart that uh, 
and what you've got, what you went through that day. Uh, I, you know, I, I can't imagine um, seeing it on TV is it, it makes your stomach drop. And um, I mean, to this day, it's, it's an unfortunate memory that we have and that, and uh, you live through that. So again, thank you very much uh, for telling me about it and sharing it with the listeners and uh, for your service as well, sir. Well, thank you, Matt. And, and you know, in closing, the thing I'd say is it was hot. It was nasty. It was very, you know, it had to be done. And not only me, but a lot of the folks that were around me, you know, we grew stronger from having gone through it. And the sense of purpose and the sense of camaraderie you know, if something bad happens to you, you can decide how you want to take it. You can either let it ruin you and you can let it define you for the rest of your life. Or you can say, this happened to me and this is what I'm going to do about it. Uh, and that doesn't mean to avoid it or, or over-medicate it. It's process it, deal with it, talk about it, own it. And so engaging and talking about it has been helpful and therapeutic for me. Uh, I do think it's an important part of history. Um, you know, that, that being part of the, the Aiden letter teams that were lined up to go back into the building. I'm proud of that. I'm proud of walking across that abandoned parking lot and the men and women that were around me, you know, that, that quiet professionalism of, okay, he hit us, but we're not out and we're not out. And uh, every time that you get hit, you get up and, and just never quit. And that's a simple rule to it. So I'm really grateful for you taking the time to talk to me. I think your podcast, uh, Left at the Light, is a real interesting prospect. I looked at some of the past shows. Now I'm definitely going to go and listen. Uh, you were talking with my friend Tom out of uh, Woodstock, who's got the uh, awesome jewelry store there. Um, I hope you can talk to Roxanne with her uh, her, her writing escapades because she's a dynamic young lady. And there's some really great little business stories here. So you, you've got a winning platform that you're going with and love to come back and chat with you again sometime. So. All right. Well, thank you very much. And we'll talk to you soon then. All right. Thanks, Matt. Thanks. Guys, thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this episode. Uh, it was a longer one than we normally have, but uh, just, uh, just as important, if not more important. And that's why um, I jumped on this one to put it out. Um, you know, this kind of came together within roughly a week. And, I, you know, <laughs> Ryan asked me what, after we finished recording, he's like, oh, when, when are you going to put this out? I'm like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this together tonight <laughs> um, because I want to I get it out there. Uh, 20 year anniversary is right up on us. And um, like I said at the beginning, feel free to share this uh, with everybody. Uh, share it on your social media. Share it to people you know. Let them know about it. Uh, students, faculty, whatever. You know, you, you have my permission to take this and share it with people and listen to it. Um, but I appreciate it. And uh, uh, as always, um, you know, this, this was one where someone reached out to me and said, hey, you know, let's, let's tell this story. Uh, left at the light pod at gmail.com. Uh, I would appreciate it if you have an idea, have a business or whatever it is. Uh, let me know. Uh, and uh, let's get you on the show. So I'm going to end this one a little bit differently. Um, we're just going to, before the whole music kicks in, just, um, you know, and this is something that, like, I remember, I, I'm jumping around a little bit, but I remember when 
all this happened and the places I worked for the next couple of years, um, on that day, there would be a moment of silence. And I, I noticed um, that hasn't happened in a while. And I hope on the 20 year anniversary that it does uh, a little bit more that people take time to remember that day. Um, so I'm going to end the episode with a moment of silence. And uh, I hope uh, you listen through. Uh, but again, guys, thank you for listening. I'm Matt. This is Left at the Light. Email me, leftatthelightpod at gmail.com. Rate, review, subscribe. Thank you for listening.